1: Hey, this is Danny Goldberg, author of Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Copain. And you're listening to whatever, never mind. <laughs>
0: To welcome to the program, then, uh, Danny Goldberg. Danny, I'm not sure what kind of title to give you. You're an author. You've been pretty much a big shot at uh, in record labels all across the, the basically the whole spectrum of, of jobs, I guess. You uh, band management. How would you? Uh, what title would you give yourself?
1: Well, you know, I've I've been around a long time, so my business cards have <laughs> changed. Right, right now I have a small management company called Gold Village. I represent Steve Earle and the Waterboys, among others, Bentley and. Martha Wayne right? and and I've been writing a lot the last several years. I've, I've written several books in the last five years. The most recent one is "Serving the Servant," remembering Kurt Cobain, that I think stimulated you reaching out to me. And I have one coming out in November called uh, "Bloody Crossroads 2020: Art, Entertainment, and Resistance to
0: Trump." Oh my gosh! Uh, give me what? Give me a little tease on what that's going to be about.
1: Well, I just the bulk of the book documents the year 2020 from the sort of January 1st through the basically the inauguration and just the, the pretty granular detail about the engagement of a wide variety of mass appeal artists and entertainers uh, from uh, Taylor Swift to Robert De Niro, from Cardi, Cardi B to Jane Fonda, you know of, of both music, film, Activist artists, as well as people whose art itself had a political vibe and or subtext to it, whether it was a miniseries like *The Plot Against America* on HBO or a, a song or something like that, and I just felt it was a time of unprecedented activism by artists, in part because the president had initially become famous on a reality TV show, and in part because some of the issues were so emotional and uh, other things like that. So it's it's just my look at the at basically the election through the prism of entertainment.
0: Wow. Um, that sounds fascinating. I look forward to that. You said that's coming out in November?
1: Yeah, November 2nd. It'll,
0: it'll be out.
1: I spoke to, you know, a lot of it was research.
0: I also spoke to Bruce Springsteen and John Legend and
1: you know, the guy that produces billions and, uh, you know, you know, just different different uh, art actors, directors, you know, and, and singers, uh, Chuck D and, you know, just different people to, to get other voices in there besides, you know, my own research. Anyway, it's kind of you to let me uh, plug it this way.
0: Oh Absolutely, it sounds fascinating. Um, uh, before we get into today's topic, why don't you take me back a little bit and, and give us just a little bit of background on how how you got into music in the first you know place as far as the industry, and like what were your what were your early roles and, and how did you kind of ascend uh, up, up the ladder?
1: Well, I uh, I was very much a, a child of the late '60s. I graduated from high school in 1967. And although I enrolled in college at the University of California at Berkeley, I dropped out pretty quickly, got in trouble. And by the time, you know, by the fall of 1968, I just turned 18. I just needed a job. I I ended up, through an end of the New York Times, getting a clerical job at Billboard, which I didn't know at the time what Billboard was. I just liked that it said magazine, and it was, you know, it it was just one of the first job interviews i did and i discovered that it was trade that there was this thing called a trade magazine that there was this thing called the music business that the music i loved was was a part of this business and that there were people on the other side of the office that were actually getting paid to go to concerts and listen to records (laughs) and write their opinions about them and that seemed like like incredible to me especially the idea of getting free records and everything so i nagged them until they let me start writing reviews, and my first couple of years was kind of as a rock journalist, rock critic. I I went from Billboard to some other trades. I did some record reviews for Rolling Stone and so on, and then um, I realized after a few years of that that I was more of a fan than a critic, that what I really liked to do was just champion people I loved that I didn't have sort of the the critical posture that made for the really successful music journalists. And, uh, you know, I ended up being a publicist and got lucky that in in the middle of 73, the PR company I was working for got Led Zeppelin as a client. And because I was the youngest one there and the guy with long hair, I was picked to be the day-to-day guy. And that really changed my career because to this day, I still get asked about Led Zeppelin the way I get asked about Nirvana. But when I met Nirvana, they wanted to talk about Led Zeppelin. I mean, it was just a great thing to be Hmm. associated with them in my, in my twenties. And then, uh, you know, and then when I saw, I learned more about the business, I, I was very impressed with the power and the role that Zeppelin's manager Peter Grant played, so I wanted to be a manager. And then in the middle of it, I ended up spending a dozen years running record companies. But you know, it was before and after that, I was a manager. Now I'm a manager, and when I worked with Nirvana, I was a manager. So that's a that's a quick uh, wrap, but that's probably enough, right?
0: <laughs> no, that's great. A uh, uh, Gold Mountain Records was that your first record label? <laughs>
1: Um, I'm trying to think I mean I obviously I worked for Swan Song Records I had the title of Vice President of Zemple Swan Song and then uh, uh, um, when I left Swan Song I started a PR company uh, and out of that PR company I worked with Bearsville Records which was a label at the time that Bob Dylan's former manager Albert Grossman owned and went through Warner Brothers and the guy who ran it was one of my best friends at the time named Paul Fishkin. He was dating Stevie Nicks and we ended up putting together a label called modern records. That was the first label that I owned part of. uh, And that put out the first two uh, Stevie Nicks solo albums, both of which went were number one albums. So I guess modern records was the first label I really um, had a piece of prior to that. I'd worked for a couple of labels and then, um, Gold Mountain it started as a label. It was pretty unsuccessful. I didn't, I uh, you know, but I, I turned it into a management company. and The management company became pretty successful.
0: And is that the company then that you wound up that you were uh, working at? Basically, when you got involved with Nirvana.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I had started and Gold, gold Mountain. Do I have that right? Well, well, you you're, you've definitely figured out that my name is Goldberg, and that I think <laughs> the word gold in several different companies. Um, Nothing wrong with that. Gold Castle was a um, a small label that I started with a friend of mine named Julian Schlossberg. Oh, that—that's not the management company.
0: I apologize. Castle Hill.
1: Now, Gold Castle, and then we put out. We just had this idea that there were these aging that folk artists like Joan Baez, Judy Collins, Peter Paul, and Marion, and some others who were shunned by all the major labels but who were still doing interesting creative work so it never made any money but put out some wonderful records but the management company was called Gold Mountain which is another anglicized way of oh, saying okay. Goldberg and Gold Mountain um first success uh in the late 80s was uh, we had Belinda Carlisle after the Go-Go's broke up her solo to first two solo cycles which were very successful mm-hmm. uh, then uh then uh bonnie Raitt, who was in between labels and ended up making a deal for her that that revived her career and uh, the first album won all the big grammys and then i i wanted to figure out how to address this now now this gets us to the end of the 80s and there was this new energy in rock and roll that was called uh, postmodern by some people, or American punk. It wasn't the seventies punk of the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. It was mm-hmm. sort of punk that was inspired by by American, and mostly West Coast artists like Black Flag, but also like Fugazi and uh, others, Dead Kennedys, and and uh, so I, I hired uh, a young guy named John Silva, who today is an extremely successful manager, represents the Foo Fighters and others, and uh, together we signed Sonic Youth. Uh, And then Sonic Youth told us about Nirvana. So that was Gold Mountain. That was a management company. And we had these older artists like Bonnie and the Allman Brothers and the the pop producer David Foster. And then we also developed this roster of which Nirvana was the jewel, you know, uh, but also had uh, the Beastie Boys and, and Sonic Youth.
0: So that's how they kind of got him come into your lab. Did you, after working with Sonic Youth, then did you pursue, pursue Nirvana, or how did they end up? with Well,
1: that? I didn't really. You know, I, I management is a funny kind of business. It's a cash business. You, you know, you don't you don't own the masters or the publishing. So, you know, I always hated to take on new artists, not because I didn't like the romance of discovering and developing a new artist, but because they don't pay you usually pay you anything the first year so i i was uh, and, and <laughs> wow. i was known in the office to just always discourage people on new Orleans. but so silva had seen nirvana open to, to sonic youth and he got thurston moore to call me thurston moore's the lead guitar player of sonic youth and one of the one of the vocalists and he said look i know you don't like new acts but this is the best band you know, we've seen, and I completely trusted him. I mean, they were great artists, but also he and his colleague Kim Gordon and others in in, in Sonic Youth, where they were like just the curators of the sort of American punk, postmodern indie rock world and uh, a tremendous uh, reputation for, you know, discovering uh, talent. So based on his uh, enthusiasm, I agreed to meet with Nirvana, and I think Nirvana met with us because they trusted Sonic Youth. Okay. Sonic Youth were such role models of how to be ethical, creative, and still function, you know, in the marketplace. And uh, you know, we met them. We had one meeting with them, and you know, by the next, by the end of the day, we were the manager. You know, they had done Bleach. Uh, They wanted to uh, switch to a major label. They they wanted a conventional, you know, LA kind of a management company. And I think the fact that we also work with Sonic Youth. You know, gave them also the the confidence that we were sensitive to the cultural things that mattered to them, and uh, very quick uh, agreement
0: was Dave in the band at that point yet.
1: Dave had just joined the band. I think that I think when we met with him, it was like literally a week or two after he joined the band.
0: Okay, well, I guess, I'm guessing based on your background, uh, you you know, I, I got a quick segue just on a personal note. 1968 often gets compared to. Um, this last kind of handful of years, did do, do, do you, do you, as someone who was there, you know, cognitive, you know, I was born in 70. So, uh, do, do you see the parallels between kind of the state of this country the last couple years with the, a lot of the unrest and the, the protests? Um,
1: there were definitely some parallels and some differences. Um, certainly the, the feeling that the country was divided, uh, was was uh, similar. There was tremendous division about the war in Vietnam in particular. And the people on one side, you know, had a hard time dealing with people on the other side, even if they were like in the same family, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. So that feeling of there being two Americas, uh, that kind of polarization, is to me the the biggest similarity. Now, I have to say, in 68... And, you know, for the next several years, people like me were very much in the minority. Uh, Richard Nixon was elected by a gigantic landslide in 1972. Reelected, okay. elected, you know, with 60 percent. And Democrat, even in 68, only got like 43 percent. You know, Nixon and George Wallace, who even ran to the right as a more uh, you know, white supremacist candidate. So I think that 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 the balance is better today, in my opinion. At least, at least we have a majority of people in the country who agree with us. Those of us who, you know, are, you know, not Trumpists. And um, and uh, so, so that's that's a difference. But the um, the the racial tensions, unfortunately, uh, although things are generally speaking, better in terms of the rights of of African-Americans and other people of color than they were 50 years ago, The, the basic disparity in opportunity and wealth and The way the Criminal Justice Department treats people, uh, you know, uh, many, many other issues has not, wasn't just magically solved by the civil rights movement in the 60s. So there's definitely a link between, and some of the writers like James Baldwin from the late 60s and artists like Gil Scott Heron, you know, their work still resonates 50 years later because of those similarities.
0: Uh, yeah, that that's interesting to to hear the perspective of somebody from that time. No, no, no. I took you on this little tangent. The the, the thing that uh, sprung me to that was that I'm I'm picturing you as someone who kind of grew up in that era, hearing Nirvana. Did you actually enjoy the music?
1: Well, um, I I I was very busy when I first met the band. Again, we had 40 50 people working in the office. I was trying to make it. I was just turned forty. I just had my first kid. And I and my time was very very fragmented, uh, so I, I did it initially on a leap of faith because of what Thurston said, John's enthusiasm, mm-hmm. and the general buzz. Uh, but after a, a period of time, I realized I'd never seen them play, and <laughs> I'm a big believer then as now that as much as recordings are important, you get another level of connection to an artist when you see them live. So they were doing while they were while they were rehearsing the songs that Kurt wrote for nevermind. He wanted to do a gig in LA just to try some of them out in front of an audience. And they opened to uh, dinosaur. Junior was the headliner at the, uh, a a room called the palace that was then having concerts in LA, probably held like eight or 900 people. Mm -hmm. And so I went, um, by myself after, you know, and was just blown away when I saw him on stage and the, Combination of his voice and the intimacy he had with the audience, that sense that everybody, you know, it was like he was talking individually to people. So once I saw them live, I, I I fell head over heels in love with them as an artist, even though I was 40 and, you know, way older than most of their audience. I could recognize the genius when I saw them live. That's, that was the moment. Uh, but that was a few months after we were already managing them.
0: Over the course of doing this, one of the, the things, you know, because I'm a fan um, of of that whole scene. Actually, not that big of a Nirvana guy, to be, to be honest with you. A ton of respect for what they did, and we'll get into that. But, uh, um but a lot of a lot of ideas and memories that I had had, you know, were changed basically through talking to a lot of different people. And, and the more I heard certain things, it just reinforced that. And, and so like my my things that I that I once thought, I no longer thought, you know, and one of those was that, you know, Kirk kind of had this nonchalant like ah, who cares kind of thing, but he was actually quite driven to be successful. Um, would you agree with that? And if so, did, was that something you could tell early, like early on when you started working with him?
1: Yeah, because he came. That's why they came to us and and to me was because of that ambitious side of him. That you know he didn't show it to everybody. Uh, that wasn't part of his art, but it was part of what made the art successful. Uh, and uh, it was obvious from the very first meeting that he had very strong ideas about where he wanted the band to go, and that was reinforced just every other time I ever spoke to him. I don't think anybody becomes that successful just by accident without a certain level of ambition. And when I wrote the book, you know, I talked to Chris Novoselic a lot about it. And He said Kurt was very intense when it came to his art. You know, he insisted on rehearsing every day. And he, he you know, if you look at his journals, he had all these drawings from when he was a kid of imagining Nirvana as a headliner and playing arenas. And he had a vision for exactly what Nirvana became, a very successful artist that spoke the international language of mass appeal rock and roll, but was rooted in the cultural values and intimacy of, 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 of American punk. And he fused those two things together and created a whole current in, in in you know in the next chapter of what you know rock and roll was and and in the wake of Nirvana's success, obviously you have Pro Jam and Soundgarden, mm-hmm. artists that had been together before maybe but hadn't been successful yet. He 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 sh- he kind of showed the music business writ large globally that there was you know a younger audience that was sick of the older rock, huh. what they called corporate rock, and so so he he really had that vision. He had a lot of angst in his life, a lot of pain but when it came to his art which included the entire career of nirvana not just the songwriting the singing and the guitar playing but the production of the records the videos the artwork on the albums the way they handled the media the way they handled their touring career that all came out of his vision and he manifested exactly the way he wanted it it didn't give him all the happiness he hoped it would but it absolutely accomplished you know that that was that was a conscious creation it was not accidental
0: yeah, and, and touching back a little bit on what you said, you know, n- n- never mind breaking the way it did, opened doors for all those bands. The the other the the other big three bands, you know, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, and Pearl Jam, all saw their biggest success after that record kind of opened the door. Oh, yeah,
1: also a hundred percent. Yeah, and and in the and and many 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 other bands. But like you know when well, they yeah. were <laughs> when they were going to do Nevermind, you know, I mean, the, the, half of the recording budget was spent hiring a rehearsal room and he insisted that they rehearse like eight hours a day for months. When they went mm. into the studio, they had played those songs hundreds of times. So, you know, Butch Vig who produced nevermind said he just couldn't believe it. You know, he, they they would do things in one or two takes because, because Kurt had this, you know, intensity about, about having the music be exactly right. You know, it was not uh, sloppy. It was intense, it was raw, but it wasn't sloppy. It was conscious music.
0: Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I, I've definitely heard a lot of things that echo everything you're talking about there, and, and they definitely hammered out that record. Even Steve Albini told me how quickly they recorded in Utero it was only like a couple weeks. So S-
1: Same thing, because they rehearsed all the songs, you know these were not guys who made it. Uh, Yeah. He took very seriously the craftsmanship of songwriting, arranging and, 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 and recording. So they did the same thing. They, they, they didn't rehearse in the studio. They rehearsed way before they went into
0: the Mm -hmm. studio. So when they're making this record, like what, what is the role of Danny Goldberg at that point?
1: Oh, very little, you know, they, they knew what they were doing. Um, and, uh, you know uh i just was excited when i heard the roughs of it and i heard smells like teen spirit it was like a whole other level of songwriting that hadn't been apparent on bleach i mean i thought they were going to get bigger but i didn't know they were going to make that kind of a leap mm-hmm. uh, but i was not i didn't go to the studio i you know, I'm, you know i'm running the management company yeah i'm not a record producer i'm not a musician uh i was waiting for them to finish the album basically that was my that was my main role
0: I know there's so many roles and th- that 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 are, you know, like publicists and all these other people that 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 come together and kind of work when the big machine gets going on something. That it just it is fascinating to me because management seems to encompass almost it's so generic a term that it could mean almost anything. Um, it just-
1: varies from artist to artist um, because they it's up to what the artist wants the manager to do. Okay. You know, uh, the, the, it's it's a service profession. You work for the artist, but in general. You know, an artist, especially if you go back to that time, you know, had a number of different relationships. They had a relationship with the record company. They had a relationship often with the music publisher. They had a relationship with the media, uh, the, the radio part of the media, the press part of the media, and MTV, which was its own thing that was so incredibly important to American, you know, popular music at that time you know it was you know 24 hours a day 7 days a week playing music videos you know on a, on a cable channel when there were some far fewer channels than there are today and uh you know they would have a relationship with concert promoters they would have a lawyer they would have an account they would have a tour manager who dealt with the logistics on the road uh and and then and then there were the concert promoters there was a booking agent that would book the shows and the manager was sort of you know one one way people would describe the manager was the um uh, sort of the CEO, you know, overseeing was the link between the artist and all those seven or eight different things, and to, on behalf of the artist, try to get those different systems to function uh, uh, to maximize what the artist wanted, which combined, in Nirvana's case, 100% control of the art and the cultural symbolism associated with what they did. And at the same time, they wanted to make money and be successful. So, So the other the other uh, way people describe management is like it's it's the buck stops with you. You Mm. know, anything that goes wrong is your fault. Therefore, you've (laughs) got to try to stay ahead of everything. And then with some artist manager relationships, and this did happen with me and Kurt. It doesn't happen all the time. You become a personal sounding board to just help them think through what they want to do. They're in charge, but they like to have somebody to talk to. Uh, with another, with another, um, set of experiences and relationships. So, uh, sometimes there's that personal component of a, a advisor also, you know, uh, and, uh, but in general, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of driving the business, you know, most managers don't get involved with the music. I certainly never did. I don't have any musical talent. I, I have admiration for people with musical talent and I like being their advocate. Um, So managers typically are, you know, again, they they, they run the business of Mm -hmm. the artist, you know, and in doing that, they deal with a lot of these other entities. But those entities usually will always go through, most situations go, you know, through the manager.
0: So you don't play any instrument? No, no.
1: I tried when I was a kid. I just had no, no uh, <laughs> aptitude. All
0: right. Uh, well, I I'm never mind. Kurt would actually complain about the production. Eventually, He's, uh, he said it sounded like a Motley Crue record, which I'm, I, I don't necessarily agree with him on that one, uh, Danny.
1: You know, I think that he he had a balance. Um, his uh, relationship with the punk subculture, which had just inspired him enormously in his teenage years which he he recognized the outsiderness of it the 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 need for integrity the emotions of that audience and even though they were only a small percentage of the total eventual audience for nirvana they were the original audience and and he always wanted to stay true to that part of himself so after nevermind was incredibly successful he would sometimes say shit like that in interviews to uh <laughs> to try to recognize the difference between the pure punk fans and this mass rock audience that now also like nirvana but he completely controlled the sound of that record it's not like anyone imposed anything on him mm-hmm. he he controlled every how much echo or no echo was on the mics he controlled the mixes he controlled the mastering he physically went to the mastering of the record he had to approve of everything he had the final say on everything and that's his record he, he then wanted a remixer he approved the remixes he he uh, he picked the guy that did the remix. you know it was his record he just then the success of it turned it into another thing it was separate from a work of art it became right. this mass cultural statement and he empathized with the punk fans who felt that the sheer success of it you know it's just weird when you know the people that used to kick your ass in high school are now part of your audience so um you you know he said some things like that about the production but wrong there yeah but i really don't think that he really believe there was anything wrong with the production of it he it was his record you know Mm -hmm. he 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 just understood the emotions of the punk audience in the wake of punk becoming this commercial medium. And suddenly, where do they go for their individual identity? And so that was part of the calculation of working with Albini on the next record. It was also, you know, that he admired a lot of the records Albini had produced, like, uh, you know, um, Breeders and so on. But uh, and the PJ Harvey record, I think he just done. But he also knew the symbolism of Albini and he knew that that's slightly raw sound. Would address that. But the truth is, I think if you listen to Nevermind and you listen to In Utero, it's the same artist. I mean, come on, it's still oh, Nirvana.
0: Yeah, no, no <laughs>
1: You know, same singer, same musician, same songwriting head. Yeah, someone Bleach will tell you the same it's thing. A pr- it's a pretty subtle sonic distinction uh it's it's real and he did it on purpose and 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 in utero is my favorite nirvana record even more than Nevermind Hmm. uh or unplugged but but you know it's the same artist it's and it's the same one person kurt cobain in my opinion who brought to life all of these records you know not not that he didn't have very important people helping him do it but uh, they'd all say he was the guy
0: what about how did he feel about like the cultural impact that, that once that kind of got out of control where you had like J.C. JCPenney selling grunge line of clothes? Um, I mean, I honestly, honestly, Danny, I don't think Starbucks would be as big as it was today if it wasn't for that scene. And and that scene doesn't blow up without Nirvana. You know what I mean? So, so he, did, well, did he have I, any thoughts you know- on that?
1: I don't know that, 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 you know, I mean, he thought the whole idea of lumping music together and people would talk about a Seattle sound, he didn't even like the word grunge, you know, because he he was an individual artist. He didn't like being lumped in with a scene or a trend or anything Mm -hmm. like that. And I think he, he, he had a point. He was an individual artistic person that wasn't just a product of some genre. Um, I think in terms of those things, you know, I don't know, he had so many other things on his mind about his own dramas, uh, his own interaction with the media, his own, suddenly his personal life becoming, you know, public, mm. uh, and uh, plus the pressure he put on himself to keep, you know, being successful and, and then trying to control his own life. So, you know, um, i i I think those other kind of things didn't you know again he 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 even when it just came to music he he generally speaking avoided things that would lump nirvana in with some scene that he looked at it as as an individual you know artist and you know like when that movie singles was made you know um uh, you know, he didn't want Nirvana to be part of the soundtrack because it wasn't. He didn't dislike those other artists. He ended up being friends with quite a few of them and admired a lot of them. But he just didn't like his the idea that that that, that his art was going to be lumped in as part of some trend or some scene. He saw it as an individual, unique current of energy, and I think
0: it was well. Wow. Um, well, never, never mind, it does eventually come out on September 24th, 1991. Um, now I'll, I'll tell you just a quick uh feedback for me: Teen Spirit. I saw the video on MTV and it clicked with me, but I, I and in a way that I wasn't sure that I actually liked it, if that makes any sense. I've talked to other people who felt that way. It's like, do I actually enjoy this? This is it, just felt like something was changing now for me. I'm just turning 20 years old. It's like almost the perfect timing for that, you know. I mean, the hair metal doesn't really speak to me like it did when I was 15, and and now I'm hearing lyrics that kind of you know resonate a little more. Like honestly, I guess. And plus, the music seemed to be delivered in, in in a punchier way. Do you by any chance remember what you were doing the day this was released? Were there big expectations? What was? Well, uh...
1: I mean, I mean, I was. Um... Again, I was there when they shot the video. And I lived through the editing of the video, you know, so I was, you know, kind of part of the team, you know, Mm -hmm. it it didn't have the impact on me that it would on a fan because I'd heard this music for a long time. We had a lot of that. We had our own sense of that something special was happening. There were all the just the mechanics of handling the business and dealing with all the different decisions that had to be made about the touring and interviews and the press kit and all that stuff so I remember um, uh, you know I I, I thought the video was was uh, was terrific you know Uh, I I thought it was it was uh, you know uh, it was a one to me it was a you know, I remember like, you know, MTV, the first week they put it in medium, and I was like, oh my God, we got to get them to put it in heavy. You know, they would have different levels of rotation, how many times a week they would play it, and heavy was the best one. And, uh, you know, with Sonic Youth, they had started in medium and then never got beyond medium. And I, I had this one week of anxiety, and then they, you know, it immediately went into heavy. They, 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 they already had planned that unbeknownst to me, but there had been a Guns N' Roses video the week before that took the other heavy slot so it took off so incredibly quickly is that where the Guns
0: and Roses beef started <laughs> yeah it, no
1: no you know it was just I kid uh, I, I
0: joke around it's day. a whole other thing
1: but you know the the um it was weird that they were on the same label though that that, that in hindsight yeah part, of, yeah. part of, that was definitely part of the whole trip but um you know uh it happened incredibly quickly I mean that song was a magic song I remember um you know when this first track came out within days the people at the company were saying that the phone requests were incredible the requests at the indie stores the advance orders you know it 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 just both the video and the song were magic in terms of their immediate impact on a mass uh, public that was clearly bigger than just the punk rock subculture that nirvana had previously appealed to so uh, the main thing about it was it was a instant hit, both the song and the and the video.
0: Yeah, the the scene changed very quick. Uh, I, I I vividly remember it. Um, but but for lack of a better term, uh, so I, I'm not trying to be insulting or anything. But that that song was milked for quite a while before the second single came out. If I recall correct, it wasn't the the next single like early '92. <laughs>
1: um yeah probably you know i think that it was always the idea that um come as you are would be the second track um we didn't really know initially that smells like teen spirit would also be a top 40 hit (laughs) you know we thought it might just be for the alternative stations and kind of the core identity song so but you know there's a certain length of time you don't want to uh it's not about milking it it's just about letting a song have the appropriate lifespan, which you read that based on the way the radio stations keep playing it. I mean, a record company doesn't control how long a radio station plays a song. They do it. They do it mostly based on the audience research they're doing. And you get the statistics every week of how many, even then, you know, how many spins something was getting. And, you you know, you just, you just, you, you just let it have its natural lifespan. And then when it's, starting to fade and uh, enough people are looking to play another song because after all the only reason you put out singles had to do with radio programming and the timing of a video release the album came out so everybody could hear all of the songs on the album if they mm-hmm. wanted to you okay. know the album was already out and in, in you know by uh, a few weeks after smells like teen spirit came out right so it was just a decision of when to uh, suggest to the radio station that they play the next song, and you wait until they're finished playing this one. However long that is, that's like every, you know, every artist.
0: When did uh, when did the band kind of realize that uh, their lives were changed basically forever?
1: Oh, pretty soon, you know. Uh, I think there was one time I remember being in the airport and. In those days, there was like a cassette rack in some of the airport stores. I think Dave said, "I can't believe our album's like in the airport. This is insane." <laughs> you know, because again, they came from punk bands. Yeah. You never see a sub pop or a you know a, a record. In it. And you know, I, I think they they I think it came pretty quickly. I mean, you know, it's hard to know what exact things you know, but but it, it happened very very quickly. Certainly you know, the album comes out the third week of September, certainly by the three months later, by the beginning of January, when it's a number one album and they're doing Saturday night live, they know their life has changed. Yeah. So sometime in that three months, which day it was might be different for the three guys, but, it it, it, it it happened very, very quick. It, it, it was pretty clear pretty quickly. I, I would certainly say within a month.
0: You're being too vague, Danny. Nail it down. Um, <laughs> uh, well, what about, like, so now they go out and go on tour. What's your daily interaction with them? Or is your interaction daily? Are you on the road with them? What kind of...
1: No, I went to certain shows. I, they had a tour manager. I didn't okay. go on the road. I would go to certain shows. I saw them in Chicago. You know, the first group of dates, uh, the idea was to play the clubs where they'd already played, even though they'd already become too big for those clubs because they didn't want to look like um, they were forgetting their roots. So in the case of Chicago is a club called the Metro that holds about 500 people. And it's to this day, there's rock critics in Chicago that say it's one of the all time greatest Chicago shows, you know. And that was the night when I first met that uh, Courtney Love. Hmm. She was there. Uh, uh, she came into the dressing room and, you know, by the end of the evening, she was sitting on Kurt's lap and, you know, they were together, you know, for the rest of his life after that. Um, so I would, um, I would go to certain shows. I saw them in London. I saw them in Seattle. Um, I, I, I forget all the shows I yeah, saw, but I didn't go on the whole tour. They didn't tour that much. Um but, you know, I saw them in fr- I saw one French festival show, I remember. Um, and um, when he got together with Courtney, um, it, a lot of the people around the band did not like her initially. Uh, and um, I had heard about her. My ex-wife had been her lawyer. I knew about her. And I also, I just, I was 40. I'd been around this a long time. And, you know, when <laughs> someone who you're managing has a, love interest you better get along with them or else you're going to lose your relationship with the artist so Fair enough. i i i immediately gave her the benefit of the doubt both because i liked her uh because uh, we knew some people in common and because it was in our mutual interest i think and uh, it turned out i was the only one that 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 at that moment was really um feeling connected with her and that made Kurt uh, reach out to me in a different way personally talking about the things and so then for the rest of his life from that moment on I kind of became the Kurt person initially I was sort of the older guy that was just running the company and dealing with kind of the record deal part of it and the macro decisions but at that point which is only about a month after Nevermind came out I my role grows to include kind of usually on most issues being the person that Kurt would want to talk to about uh, various uh, things.
0: Wow. Um, without getting too salacious, uh, were were the members of the band cool with Courtney? Was there any kind of friction there? I, you
1: know, I, I uh, you'd have to ask them. Obviously there's been all these books about them. I think the relationships went up and down over time and they're still in business together you know they share they share control of the catalog um of recordings um but generally speaking you know they became kind of a couple that had their own energy that was separate from the greater band thing even though obviously it was still a band yeah and uh you know i was um he was the lead singer and the songwriter i was like Dude, i'm following that guy around uh, uh, you know <laughs> oh. so in retrospect i probably should have spent a little more time following dave Grohl. Yeah. but i i uh at the time i was very fixated on the fact that kurt wrote and sung those songs and played lead guitar and made every decision for the band it seemed to me like he was the guy i was gonna focus <laughs> on and i loved him you know and i played some role in his head you know he liked me and like you know kind of my liberal values and my some of my background and uh i just loved the guy uh, you know and uh, you know again they became so big so fast that the minute they became big it wasn't only that i loved him it was just there was a currency to just having that relationship people were so interested in him and so you know even after i left management and was atlantic records i still maintained that role until he died
0: like his personal manager or the band manager.
1: Well, I was like a you know it was a convoluted
0: um, st- 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 structure business
1: wise. It's not worth going into okay. at the moment. But but I I um, John Silva was the manager of the band. Once I'm working as a, senior, as, a as an executive at Atlantic Records, but I functioned as a co-manager of the band with a particular role of. Being usually the person Kurt wanted to talk to, even when All I was right. at Atlantic, I, we'd have some. I have memos, you know, things on Atlantic stationery were memos about Atlanta notes I wrote to him. Uh, you know, we we'd, we'd you, you know, so so I maintained a uh, my my deal with Atlantic permitted me to continue to render services for for them because that's why they hired me. I was the mm. guy that had managed Nirvana, and I was you know kind of overseeing the A and R for that kind of music at Atlantic for those few years. And, um, anyway, that's the answer to that.
0: All right. Uh, you know I got a couple of thoughts on Courtney that I wanted to ask you on, but but um with with that kind of step away, would that have been before or after in utero? Because the reason I'm asking Danny is that I, I know there was not like the the record company wasn't thrilled with the final product when they got it back. I'm curious if you know any insight, or that seems like something a manager would be involved in. Uh, well,
1: I was, I was completely involved in all of it. Okay, that, even though by that time I was in at Atlantic, I, I, and I will say, if if you'll forgive the plug, I mean, I discuss all of this. In detail, in the book, absolutely. Sure.
0: I I may have perused that book at one point. You know, you, you it may know, it may sir, have given me a sir, little background. Sir, 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 sir,
1: serving the servant, remembering Kurt Cobain. <laughs> uh, available uh, certainly at all online stores yeah. and some and some everywhere. physical stores. But but uh, you know <laughs> well I am um, look the, the, this idea that the record company quote unquote um, uh, wasn't thrilled is is really uh, not exactly what happened. First of all, only a handful of two, I think one or two people at the record company heard the original mixes. Uh, and uh, so did a number of Kurt's friends. So did the other members of the band. And the most important person who heard it was Kurt. And, 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 and Kurt, um, uh, you know, uh, who had 100% creative control by contract and a 1,000% creative control by dint of having, you know, being this, now he was this rock icon, um, you know, cared about having hits. He talked about what's going to be the first single, what's going to be the second single. He he, he had multiple agendas. He wanted to keep his punk fans. He wanted to have big MTV videos. He, he wanted to have his integrity. He wanted to say the political things he wanted. He wanted to also, you know, be... You know, one of the biggest stars in the world. You know, this was all part of his agenda, and uh, he made the decision. Uh, he uh, he asked me if I knew uh, Scott Litt, who had uh, produced uh, the REM albums, and as part of that, mixed them. And uh, Scott Litt had been uh, one of the original names that Kirk considered for Nevermind, but the scheduling didn't work out, and he ended up with. Uh, Oh, God, this is the problem with getting older you know yeah, the, no, the, the really mo- wonderful producer who did never mind I, I just oh, never uh,
0: butch fig sorry let
1: me get yeah, ended up with that. butch fig but but so and Scott remixed um the singles on 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 in utero uh heart-shaped box uh uh he remixed um
0: oh what is it uh,
1: All apologies there we go and he he also remixed uh, did a remix of penny royalty which i think had pert lived probably would have been the next uh, uh, you know single and um uh, you know although all of this got commingled with he quickly did when he decided not to do another video after heart box that's when he had the idea to do the unplugged record but the unplugged record didn't come out until after kurt you know died um anyway he wanted those remixes and he liked scott lit enough that then he had scott Litt do all the mixing and engineering on the unplugged record okay and he also injured had had he asked scott to, to to help courtney out with a couple of songs i think on the first whole record i mean th- that doesn't mean he didn't like steve albini he respected steve albini for all the reasons that he originally wanted to work with him the certain kind of sound that he got in the studio and the integrity that albini represented but uh, he didn't like the way he mixed the record. Okay. And he, 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 you know, Kurt remixed the first record, too. Kurt, like, was hands-on with this stuff. So this whole idea that it was the label was was, uh, was a PR thing that uh, took on a life of its own. And, uh, you know, uh, at the time, again, I go into detail on this, because Albini did a couple of interviews where he said that. And then the band was so upset by Albini saying that I think it was in a Newsweek interview. First it was in a Chicago newspaper, then it was in a national magazine, that they actually issued a statement disagreeing with him and saying we nobody tells us what to do. We're doing what we want with our record, you know. Not true, you know. And Kurt, in repeated interviews, said the same thing when *In Utero* came out. Uh, but you know that mythology lives on. That this was some some external thing. This was Kurt Cobain made the records he wanted to make for his entire career, one hundred percent.
0: Right on. Is there any truth to the the story that Gene Simmons wanted them to be on that that Kiss My Ass Kiss tribute record? Albini brought it up to me.
1: Oh, I don't remember. You know, um, I just don't remember. Uh, you Fair know, enough. it. 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 it, uh, it I know. I, I I wouldn't surprise me at all if Gene wanted them. Gene's a smart guy; he would know what they <laughs> represented. And it certainly Easy. doesn't surprise me that Kurt wouldn't want to be on it. That wasn't, you know, he would do a Wipers tribute. He liked to do tributes to, you know, punk artists that inspired him, not to mass appeal people. Well, so. Before they
0: blew up, though, they did. They were on a Kiss tribute record. I'm not sure if you were that. That was. Uh, they did a cover of "Do You Love Me," I believe. Oh yeah, I forgot. I just threw that in there. Um, Well, a little bit on Courtney. One of the things that I talked about that changed, in my personal opinion going through this, I have a little more respect for her than I used to. I don't know that her and I would ever be friends. She's got kind of an abrasive personality. But I definitely, I don't think I I judged her fairly based on a lot of things that, well, you know, she's not her her own best advocate, to be honest with you. But at the same time, I don't know, there is kind of this thing where it's just harder for a woman sometimes. But uh, uh, it sounds like you get along with her fine.
1: Well, look, it's, it, we're talking about, you know, whatever, 30 years. Um, I haven't been in touch with her the last couple of years. She mm-hmm. did was kind enough when I wrote the book to talk to me a few times about it. And we, we kind of, you know, we've gone in and out of touch over the decades. Uh, there, since the pandemic, I haven't heard from her at all. I think she's living in, in London. Look, I think she's a complicated person, but I don't think if you love rock and roll you can fairly deny that she's a really good artist i mean the uh live you know live through this was you know voted you know album of the year by rolling stone and spin readers it's it's a uh, so many women of that generation who who were fans of it i think got inspired by what courtney uh, did you know uh, Mm -hmm. you know so she's she's not been the most prolific artist you know But I think the body of work, the quality level is very, very high, Um, both the songwriting and her singing. uh, I think she's done some good acting things. I think she's, you know, complicated and she's had her dark years and dark days. But, uh, you know, I think I think that Hole is in their own right, a significant artist and a significant legacy
0: yeah I, I'd agree with that, especially after like going through this. I, I, that album, of course, was on the list, so we we got into that for one episode. And my takeaway i re- I really didn't musically appreciate it any more than I did uh, initially, but lyrically, i I could just hear how much those words would mean to like a, a like a fifteen or sixteen year old girl at that time
1: you know i apologize my mind wandered for a minute oh. what about a 15 or 16
0: well, year old girl like going to like i actually never really gave that record much attention but I, when we went through it for this list i have to you know do, do my due diligence and actually pay attention to this stuff i think that album would really resonate with somebody going through some hard times in the teen years that that there's a lot of what she was talking about it seemed a lot realer you know than i than i ever really gave it much time i guess so.
1: yeah yeah i i i think I think that's a great album i i think I think they made a number of very good records and I think she's a real artist i mean look there's only one Kurt Cobain mm-hmm. and I think she would be the first to say she's not him but she's Courtney love and she um she wrote those songs um she certainly wrote the lyrics that you know musically she did have a good band and everything but you know uh I think she's a very very good lyricist and um you know, and, and, and a unique figure in, 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 in part of kind of part of rock history has often been her own worst enemy. She yeah. admit that too, I think, but uh, so have a lot of creative
0: people. Sure. Yeah. That's kind of like, it, like it, I don't know that we would judge her the same way if she were a man. Uh,
1: I think that's true. I mean, unfortunately, uh, it's a, uh, it's been a, male genre rock and roll yeah. and uh you know it, there's been a streak of misogyny in that culture the way there is in you know general culture and uh and uh you know uh, that's that's just uh, that's just uh, true but um but the work holds up the great thing about music is you know the the music's still there for people to listen to yeah
0: you know I, i'm a little foggy on the timing but kurt odeed while they were on tour in europe uh at some point right
1: yeah, he, he OD'd uh, in Italy. Um, again, the exact dates are all in the, sure. in the book, but it was only about six weeks before he died, I that's think.
0: That's where I was what, that's what uh,
1: He took an overdose of something called Rohypnol, which is, I don't know what it is, some kind of sedative, sleeping pill, whatever it was, and had to have his uh, stomach pumped. And that was a scary uh, several hours. Uh, I was in New York. I was on the phone, you know, with Courtney a couple of times that day, uh, but I wasn't in Italy. Uh, and um, and then about just about six weeks later is when he killed himself, I think.
0: It was, uh, th- there's been rumors that the band was close to breaking up at the end of that tour. In, in, do you know anything about that?
1: Well, I think there were tensions to the band. Look, uh, drug addiction is a horrible <laughs> scourge. It's bad for every relationship and including the relationship of members of a band and and he he was a drug addict there's no question about it he fought it but he you know often fought a losing battle with it um so um you know a lot of bands go through those things i mean and uh i'm sure you know uh it was one of those situations where I'm sure every time it was seeming like, oh, is this going to be the last time? I mean, I, no one knows what would have happened if he had lived. Mike, I'm sure there would have been reunions at a minimum. I'm sure Dave Grohl would have found his voice for sure. He knew he. I may not have known that he could be a frontman and a lead singer at that time, but he sure mm-hmm. must have known it uh, to become what he this is. What he's become. So you know, I'm sure things would have changed. But there were tensions. There was also an immense, enormous bond when they played together. That often overcame the
0: tensions. Yeah, you know, you mentioned this in your book, uh, serving the servant. That the last time you talked to him was an intervention. That that has to be. I mean, the interventions aren't easy for anybody. Yeah, you know, uh, how? That's that's the last time you saw him, though, right?
1: The last time I saw him, I called him. You know, I I flew down to Los Angeles. I went I went to Seattle uh you know i was like working in new york but my family was still in la so i like went from new york to seattle and seattle down to la so i called him when i got home to la late that afternoon or early evening so i did speak to him one time after that intervention uh on the phone uh the same day basically of the intervention you know, the intervention was like in the morning, and I guess I spoke to him that night on the phone. And those were the last, that was the last time I saw him, and then subsequently followed by the last time I spoke to him.
0: Um, and maybe you don't want to answer, but w- were Dave or Chris involved in that intervention?
1: Not in my memory. Um, not in my, not in my memory. Uh, you know, uh, I remember Silva was there, Janet uh, Billig, who... Work with the management company was there. Um, I forget who else was there. Some, uh, but but I don't. I don't think at that point. I don't think Chris or Dave were there.
0: Okay, uh, and, and we're getting here towards the end here. But just a couple more things. Um, uh, do you maintain any kind of contact with Dave or Chris?
1: I've been in touch over the years. With Chris, we we share a lot of uh, political beliefs. Uh, uh, I had a small publishing imprint that uh, published a book that Chris wrote called Of Grunge in Government. And uh, he's on the board of a thing, or I think he's chairman of the board now, something called Fair Vote. You know, back before the pandemic, when they'd have meetings or events in New York. I'd usually go and see Chris there. And Chris did did talk to me for the book. Uh, Dave, I have not been in touch with. I reached out to him for the book, didn't hear back from him you know, there were some hurt feelings from that time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I got to talk to most of the folks that were involved, but there were a few that didn't want to talk. Uh, so, uh, not with Dave, uh, for quite a while, but with Chris, uh, I feel through the decades, I've always stayed in touch with him again. I haven't talked to him since the pandemic started, but I, I just feel he's someone that every couple of years we end up in the same room. he's a, he's a, I mean, they're all great guys. He's a particularly lovely person.
0: nice. Um Dave does seem hesitant to talk about Nirvana just in general.
1: Yeah, I never knew him as well. He was the newest member of the band. You know, Chris and I always had this sort of political conversation going on parallel to whatever else was happening. Kurt was this genius that I, you know, then became connected with personally. Uh, and I never got to know Dave as well. I don't feel that I have anything intelligent to say about him except that he's an incredibly talented. Guy, then and
0: now, it is kind of incredible what he's done with the Foo Fighters. But uh, yeah, um, coming, you know, striking gold twice, so to speak. But uh, well, looking back at Nevermind, let's uh, well, we'll we'll, yeah. re- we'll tie it back to that. Um, what do you think about it now? I mean, have you listened to it? What was the last time you would have listened to it? And and when you look back, what what are your thoughts?
1: I just think it's a classic album. You know, it's very uh, strange. You know, when you're involved with a, a record professionally. You can never hear it the way a fan hears it um but you know i just think it's the, the songwriting is incredible i listened to all of the music when i was writing the book that came out two or three years ago and you know uh there are periods where i don't listen to nirvana but you know i i i think it's a, you know one of the great rock albums you know uh, of, of all time and you know uh i'm very proud that i ha- was involved with it as uh one of the managers of the
0: band right on uh danny thank you so much for your time thank you for coming on you are definitely oh my lord you've just been involved in so many major you know artists of 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 rock history uh it, it, it truly was an honor to to get some time from you
1: oh it's very nice to talk to you and i appreciate the thoughtfulness of the questions and uh You know how to reach me anytime.
0: All right. In the book, Serving the Servant, which came out in 2019, of course, is available pretty much anywhere you can buy a book. Uh, You want to pimp that one coming out in November one more time? Hit me with the title.
1: Sure. Bloody Crossroads 2020, Art,
0: Entertainment, and Resistance to Trump. Alright, uh, everybody go out and buy that book uh, You can pre-order it now, yes <laughs> <laughs> DannyGoldberg.com, is that right? Uh, no,
1: you go on Amazon or okay. Barnes & Noble <laughs> or wherever You know, that's where they sell the books
0: I Have a good night, Danny, I really appreciate it Later, bye
1: And I have to tell you, I, I mean, I just, th- this is being taped, right? Are we lying? Mm-hmm. We're not.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.